Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program contains the names of people who have passed. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration. I just want to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. We only learned yesterday and the day before it was exposed in the NT News that whilst the Royal Commission has banned spit hoods and the restraining chairs, they have been used 27 times and 21 times in 2021 last year. Campaigning for youth justice, the community pushed to close the Northern Territory's Dondale Detention Centre. And allies against discrimination, strengthening relations between First Nations and the Australian Jewish communities. And although Jewish leadership and communal bodies participate in symbolic initiatives like reconciliation, and some have expressed support for the Uluru Statement, many Jewish leaders believe that articulation of these principles alone contributes to our relationship with First Nations peoples. But where is the Jewish-led advocacy to expose and end the systemic racism, which is the cause of so much disadvantage? This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The Dondal Correctional Centre in the Northern Territory became known around the world in 2016 when graphic CCTV footage of the physical and mental abuse of young inmates became public. The outrage sparked a royal commission. But six years later, a community-led movement is still calling for reform, including the closure of the Dondale facility. Auntie Josie Crawshaw is one of those community elders and leaders. She is also a former ATSIC commissioner and a lifelong advocate for the rights of First Nations people, especially women and children. Auntie Josie, welcome to Speaking Out. Oh, thank you, Larissa. Obviously, you have now put your considerable experience and reputation into this campaign to close the Dondale Correctional Centre. So I wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about what it is that you're hoping to achieve with the campaign. Look, we want the Dondale Jail closed down immediately. It cannot go on any longer in that condemned prison and that they live in cage-like cells. They have had enough time. It was even supposed to have been built by about June 2020. We took photographs uh, last week and there's just soil and a bit of rocks out where the site is. Uh, They're now talking it might be 2023, but by that time it'll be nine years that those children have been in a condemned adult prison and the trauma and the damage that they have done to those children's lives means they have been shackled to this justice system and they will continue to just go through the door and become majority will end up being adult prisoners. It's been the way it is. There is no therapeutic framework. These children are going in damaged And they need a doctor. They do not need to be in a cell. We want to have also diversionary programs. At the moment, we have had 
most times it's 100% of the children in Dondale from 10 years of age to 17 are Aboriginal. There'd be times it might drop to about 95%. But on the whole, this is a justice system that's to do with Aboriginal youth. The other thing, at the moment, it gets anything to 70 80% of the children are in there are on remand. They haven't even got a court case yet. Some of them are first offenders of very minor cases, but they amended the Bail Act last year under this tough-on-crime policy of theirs, and we have now seen the numbers that are being incarcerated nearly 100% more. And these children have not even been found guilty yet. And it's made them harder and harder to get bail. If they do get bail, one of the things that we want them to stop doing is putting ankle bracelets on them. They haven't been found guilty yet. And they are putting on tracking devices on their ankles, the stigmatization of that. And when I look at what could only be called as a racist practice. They haven't gone to the court yet, so they're not even guilty. This needs to be exposed. This is a huge breach of the human rights. And I believe it's part of the UN genocide, what you want tested, and the UN torture protocols. We only learned yesterday and the day before it was exposed in the NT News that whilst the Royal Commission has banned spit hoods and the restraining chairs, they have been used 27 times and 21 times in 2021 last year. It is inconceivable that the Four Corner Stories exposed this This is anywhere around the world that these are torturous devices and they are still using this and I think it's only been our campaign that this has started to be getting some traction that the media are starting to pick up and people are starting to speak and tell stories. So this place needs to be closed down. They need to put them in proper accommodation immediately and they need to have assessments done, mental assessments done, they need to stop and they need to peel that bail act that they put in last year and those things need to be immediately stopped and we need to have diversionary programs and trauma-informed framework developed. This is critical and we need to have them expediting the court process where they're leaving children in remand six and seven months before they even get to the court. And if they do get bail and they go out and they break that bail out in the streets where they're prohibited to maybe go to the shopping centre, they turn up the shopping centre, they breach their bail conditions, they're back in. It would not be tolerated if these were white kids. They're all black kids. And the thing about bail, these children come from the lowest socioeconomic families vulnerable. They were born here. They come from the territory. They don't have the money to run. They don't even have the money to leave their bloody suburb. There is no reason to put those tracking devices on them. And we need to expose 
what's an absolute shame in this country that they can do this to our children. I believe our children have been shackled, they're shackled from birth to their death. And the racism in this country is a public health crisis. And we need to actually have this addressed. And, you know, we have a prime minister that even admits that they've devastated and damaged our lives within the next breath, he says, but we should forgive them for that. Children have been, from the time of invasion, from the time they stepped foot, have worn the brunt of the colonisation in this country. And it has never stopped. The removal of children, they were either watching their parents be massacred, they were made orphans themselves, they got through and became adults, they end up being massacred, their children became orphans, till then they removed children to right up to the 70s. We then had the intervention here that we will take decades to recover from where they brought in the army. This morning I read where that independent Robin Lamley used to be with the CLP, was head of child protection when she was in there, is now calling on another intervention, maybe the military be brought in on children and the crimes that are happening in Alice Springs. And what's happened in this country is that they've turned it all around because if you look at biologically, independent of any social context that we're living in, how can we be dying? How can we be more criminals? How come we've got the highest suicide rate of youth? How come we've got the highest incarceration? Why are we the least housed, the least employed, the least healthy in this country? And it's because the systemic power structures of every battle that we win and every program, whether it's closing the gap, whatever they might have, they never look at the power structure that keeps us in poverty and welfare and keep our children being criminalised, then use suicide, then going through the revolving door of the jails. It has to stop. I think we have a case of full-on genocide in this country. Annie, can you just perhaps let people know how they can find out more about your campaign to close Dondale and how people can find out more information? Yes. Look, we do have a website and it's called Close Dondale Now and people can follow the movement on that and hopefully we will get this having a broader exposure not only across Australia but internationally. Well, we can put a link to the website on our site here on Speaking Out on ABC. So thank you so much for the privilege of speaking with us tonight. Oh, thank you, Larissa. Arnie Josie Crawshaw is a community leader in the campaign to close the Dondale Correctional Centre in the Northern Territory. Join the conversation online, facebook.com slash ABC Speaking Out. Look, listen and learn knowledge. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well.
Coming up, human rights lawyer George Newhouse reviews the historic relationship between First Nations and the Australian Jewish community. Right now, though, some music. This track is called Chapter One, and it's by NT rapper Dallas Woods. Two, four, five, six. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, at eight, seven, found connection with the place Oklahoma, where muddy water and fresh air was our favorite cologne. Bastion, Coburn Rangers, and all of the five rivers. That side alone remind us ancestors are still with us. Fresh fish for dinner, go out and turkey for dinner. Hunting packs, cause we don't want that Juwadi to get us. Walking down the highway, the tourists are taking pictures. I do now, but back then I really never used to get it. How beautiful and lucky we are to call this place home. Come to think about it, that's why we never stayed home. Always out and about, remember St. Joe's days. Mango tree where we ate, grassless hope. We play final bell lines park the next stop. Salty plum, sugar, tamarind, and pop rocks. Boys play football, girls play hopscotch. Any beast drive past me, you'll make it drop, drop. We'll spin for doof when we was little kids. Hat fights turn real when we were little kids. Street lights meant home when we were little kids. Dark times, still not home, yeah, we were little shit. True God, fast forward a few years. State school, familiar faces and new peers. Went from wearing blue to an orange uniform. The moment their reunion was formed. Cliff kid for life, win them boy till I die. No text message, just flick your hand in the sky. That's how, that's by, what now? He right, English, Creole, two worlds, hand signs. Catch a, catch a, catch a up. Young men always up to something. They break at the bakery doing nothing. Cruise around town with the bros, music pumping. Or trying to find us a wifey window jumping. Teenagers with no favors, all we had was the night. The way you earned your straps, the way you handle the fight. We know the protocol, so to the elders polite. Respect your elders or they knock out your life. It's a cultural right, my big bros got a license, dangerous, my big bros, 18 plus, dangerous, all we got is open road, that's dangerous, full tank, full esky, where they taking us, now that's the question that they wanna know, kiss my mama, my nan, and tell them I gotta go, country music playing as soon as we hit the road, hey country music where I'm from, not a single soul, well, school didn't finish it, wasn't good with listening, knew it wasn't for me, common sense was kicking in, clear as day I'm different, I'm hoping in the best way, traveling the country while my Butters finished 10th grade. Four states in 10 days, it kind of mean no leg space. Homesick, but living in the moment was my best trait. The things I've seen by the age of 16, the type of things you consider a dream. Mr. Work hard, play hard, same routine. Sometimes a little too hard, but what's life without battles? God, I make it home every once in a while. Welcome home with a smile. My friends be going up quick. A few of them having kids. I lost a few on the way. They're feeling really as shit. For that reason, won't quit. Window made me like this. Turned a boy to a warrior like a river a king. And you know, that's the way that it is so here's a message to the next gen head up high you're never gonna make a change if you're never gonna drop dallas woods representing the ek 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 you know what it is thank you very much much love peace out dallas woods there with the track chapter one you're listening to speaking out keep that tradition going and uh share it on to the younger generation. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. 
The Australian Jewish community has helped shape our nation since the arrival of the First Fleet. After fleeing persecution in Europe, many Jewish migrants came to our shores, united against fascism and seeking a life free of discrimination. Historically, the Jewish community has had a chequered relationship with First Nations Australians. Some were involved in the drawing up of our constitution and supportive of the White Australia policy, while others played key roles in the civil rights movement. These included the 1964 Freedom Rides and the landmark High Court ruling in the Mabo case in 1992. But what of more recent years? Can and should the Jewish community take a more active role in the pursuit of justice for First Nations communities? These were some of the issues explored recently in this year's Earl Hoffman Memorial Oration. The lecture was delivered by renowned human rights lawyer George Newhouse. Let's hear from him now. Now, I'm honoured to speak to you today about the relationship between the Jewish community and the First Nations peoples of this land, not just because it's an important subject, but the invitation has brought much nachas to my mother because this oration is in memory of my great uncle, Earl Hoffman. And as many of you in the audience would know, there is no greater accolade than to bring nachas to one's mother. And for those listening who don't understand Yiddish, Nachas is roughly translated as pleasurable pride. My great uncle was an inspirational founder of the ACT Jewish community. He was the president of the local community for a record seven terms and a board member for 25 years. And he is a hard act for anyone to follow. But I'm honoured to be delivering this oration today. It's a topic which I'm sure speaks to Earl's values and beliefs as a leader of this community and I acknowledge him and I stand in his shadow. Now, both Adele and I have performed a, an acknowledgement of country. That acknowledgement is 45 years old this year. And after so many decades, it's easy to take an acknowledgement or welcome to country for granted. I don't know if you can remember the first time you heard those words, but I remember it was at university and I thought, about the ongoing connection between this country and its first peoples. And that connection reminded me how my people, the Jewish people, recall our own connection to a homeland from which we were exiled two millennia ago. We remember it through religious practice. For example, we always end the Passover meal with the words that we will all meet again next year in Jerusalem. And when we acknowledge country or a welcome to country, I'm reminded that we as a nation have come a long way from the days before 1967 when First Nations peoples were either invisible or written off as a dying race. I think the Uluru Statement explains it this way. In 1967, we were counted. Now we seek to be heard and we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Acknowledging country is a very small step forward. And after nearly half a century of the practice, it also reminds me that progress is agonizingly slow. It requires more heavy lifting and that all Australians can and should do better. An example of that heavy lifting is the work of renowned Jewish lawyer, Ron Caston who together with Eddie Marbo changed the face of Australian history through Eddie Marbo's land rights case. That case overturned the legal fiction 
that what we now call Australia was a vacant or empty land or a terra nullius when the British claimed it. For the first time in 200 years, the Mabo case recognised prior First Nations ownership and Ron Caston hoped for a better Australia after that breakthrough. In 1993, he wrote, Australia will grow as a nation as it comes to terms with the reality of its own Aboriginal and Islander origins. The cathartic experience of Mabo will eventually be seen as the foundation upon which a new and stronger and uniquely Australian national identity will be forged. Now, Ron's work is a useful introduction to the subject of this oration, which is a history of the relationship between the Jewish community and First Nations people. And I want to suggest that the nature of this relationship has been defined by three separate waves of Jewish immigration. The first by Anglo-Jews, the second by Russian and European Jews, and more recently by a third wave of South African and Soviet Jewish immigrants. Now, the narrative that many Australian Jews use to describe the relationship between First Nations peoples and the Jewish community goes like this. First, in the 1930s, our peoples were united against fascism. Then later came the civil rights movements, where the two groups got along great. And in the mid-60s, Jewish students like Jim Spiegelman joined Charlie Perkins on a bus trip around Western New South Wales to challenge the racist treatment of Indigenous people. And in the 1990s, we worked together to expunge the terra nullius myth in the Marbo case. And today, the narrative continues. We walk hand in hand with First Nations people in reconciliation. Our community has pledged to support the Uluru Statement, and we work with First Nations people to move together towards a shared future. It's a beautiful image, except it's not the full story. I want to question whether Jews and First Nation peoples have had or still have a close relationship at all, and to suggest that, except for a period pre and post World War II, where our interests actually aligned, the relationship is more like two ships passing in the night. I want to share a slightly different narrative with you, one of distance and a lack of meaningful engagement and of unfamiliarity, which is something that really does concern me deeply as a Jew, as an Australian, and as a human rights lawyer, trying to address, quite frankly, harrowing experiences of racism and discrimination that continue today. Now, renowned Australian author Peter Carrier said, all white Australians know that every day they are the beneficiaries of genocide. But are we as Jews conscious of this fact? And are we who know in our bones how racism and prejudice feel, doing enough to speak up about the ongoing discrimination and oppression that is happening all around us? Are any of us doing enough for the First Nations children that are still being removed from their families into out-of-home care at rates that are higher than during the stolen generations? There are a staggering 21,000 First Nations children in out-of-home care, well, there were in June 2020, 
And if no action is taken, that devastating number will double by 2029. And that number doesn't include children on permanent care orders or those who've been adopted. So the figure is actually much higher. How many of us are aware that Aboriginal women are the fastest growing cohort in prisons around Australia? That Aboriginal children as young as 10 are being locked up in youth detention? That Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples die on average around nine years earlier than others in this country? And last year, the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and to our nation's shame, the deaths in custody continue. So I put it that we cannot deny the violence and injustice being perpetrated against First Nations people since colonisation, and we cannot stand by while it's happening today. Now, these injustices have led me and my small team at the National Justice Project to work with many families of those whose children have been unfairly taken into state care, or those who've died in custody or from prejudice in healthcare, or those who've been harmed by government policies and who desperately want to see change. Just this week, our team were consoling the parents of a Camilla Roy Dungutty father of eight children who died as a result of racial prejudice in his medical care. That man attended a hospital emergency department in extreme pain. He told staff he felt a tearing or popping sound in his stomach and he begged for help. But instead of treating his ruptured stomach ulcers, he was stereotyped as a drug user and sent home where he died some hours later from a completely treatable ailment. But these tragedies aren't the results of fascists' actions or Nazis. They're the outcome of government policies and of racist cultures or assumptions that come from within state authorities. And these cultures can corrupt our institutions and they can harm or even kill people. First Nations organisations are working tirelessly to fight for social justice, equity, and accountability in the delivery of health services, policing, education, the NDIS, the delivery of justice and other government services. But they need allies like you in all communities, not just the Jewish community, in all communities. And they need political support for change. I know how important that support is through the work I do at the National Justice Project. But why should the Jewish community be concerned? I think it's a fair question. For me, it comes down to three things. My Jewish teachers and rabbis taught me to love others and to heal the world and seek justice as a basic tenet of my faith. In fact, I often reflect on this. The first line of my bar mitzvah portion, one of the most moving days in a Jewish boy's life, begins with the words, justice, justice, shall you seek. It's the Pasha Shoftim, or Judges. Secondly, I grew up in a community surrounded by Holocaust survivors, and I felt a deep anger about the injustice of their torment. So when I became aware of the discrimination, violence, harassment, abuse, and mistreatment of First Nations people, I could not turn away from their injustice and I was compelled to act. 
I think Ron Caston says it better than me once again, when he wrote, my determination not to stand by and see the Jewish people downtrodden and persecuted was meaningless if I was standing by and seeing another oppressed people downtrodden and persecuted within my own country. And finally, at a deeper level, I recognised that I, like many other Australians, had benefited from the colonial system over the past 230 years, from the theft of another people's land, from genocide, from violence and murder, and the destruction of First Nations cultures and families. Those are the triggers that motivate me as an individual. But what about our communal responsibility? When William Cooper and the Australian Aborigines League marched to the German embassy in Melbourne in 1938 to protest about Kristallnacht, Cooper and his supporters saw the moral imperative to fight against racism at home and abroad. Isn't this the time for us, for our community, to reciprocate the brave stance of the Australian Aborigines League? The Australian Jewish community has persuasive power to help make societal change. Jewish institutions and media are extremely effective in attacking anti-Semitism whenever it raises its ugly head, and we should commend them for this. But unless there is a swastika involved, they too often seem strangely silent when First Nations peoples are victims of systemic prejudice, racist attacks, and vilification almost daily. So following on in Cooper's footsteps, the Black Lives Matter marches, and there's a picture of the Black Lives Matter marches, marches behind me today. I was present there in 2020 when tens of thousands of people marched against the treatment of Indigenous peoples and other people of colour. And they focused attention in our country on these issues. Yet in Australia, Jewish communal organisations and the Jewish press have seemingly not engaged with this aspect of First Nations struggles. And I can't understand why they haven't. We live and work on First Nations land. We know what prejudice and racial hatred looks like. We understand that pain and the generational trauma that goes with it. But when George Floyd's murderer was sentenced in Minneapolis last year, the Australian Jewish News covered the case from a US perspective. It actually quoted US Jewish organisations, but it did not mention the, a Dungari man from Kempsey, David Dungay, who died in similar circumstances, crying out, I can't breathe. And they didn't mention the colossal movement for change that grew in Australia after Floyd's death. The Jewish media just doesn't seem to cover the demands of local Black Lives Matter families, families that we work with, who are simply calling for the eradication of systemic racism here in Australia. In January this year, neo-Nazis targeted Black Lives Matter activist Paddy Gibson had his home attacked by neo-Nazis. And as far as I can tell from my searches, the Jewish community has remained silent. These stories were covered extensively in the mainstream press, but did not appear in the Jewish media. And I don't understand how our community leaders missed those but the extensive media reports spurred me to contact victims and offer my support. But was our relationship always like this? 
Jews have been fortunate to have been treated equally under the colonial laws of Australia since 1788, but First Nations people have not. And I want to trace the history of our two communities from its colonial beginnings. The relationship between Jewish and First Nations people of this land begins with the first wave of Anglo-Jews. There were Jewish convicts in the First Fleet and free settlers soon followed them. And like other immigrants to this nation, the Anglo-Jewish community worked conscientiously to be loyal British subjects, which is understandable given the Jewish experience of dispossession and persecution. I can totally understand that position. And of course, at that time, I don't believe there was any communal alliance with the first peoples of this land. I want to touch on a sensitive issue. While Jews were not the instigators of racist policies, there were some exceptions. The prominent Jewish lawyer, jurist and governor general, Sir Isaac Isaacs, took an active role in designing the racist legal framework which is embedded in our constitution to this day. Through my social justice work, I had cause to delve into the constitutional convention debates to learn and try and understand why Australia has a racist constitution bereft of any human rights. And to my consternation, I found that Sir Isaac Isaacs was a passionate supporter of the white Australia policy, or what he called a white man's war. And shamefully, he even fought against giving Aboriginal people voting rights. His advocacy contributed to Australia being the only modern nation to have a race power, a racist power, included in its legal foundations, foundations that don't include a Bill of Rights to protect us. That's a foundational systemic wrong that needs to be righted. It's a wrong that continues to offend and impact First Nations people. Now, I'm not blaming Isaacs alone. He was not the only architect of our constitution. I'm not suggesting for a moment that Jews as a group were the cause of or the drivers of racist policies. But like Isaacs and most of the Anglo-Jewish community at Federation, many Jewish people today continue to unquestioningly accept the prevailing power structures and the privileges that go with them. And they fail to see or address the systemic harm that is still being done to First Nations people. But things changed. From the 1890s, the face of the Jewish community was to change radically. The first came as Russian and other Jewish refugees began arriving in Australia and fleeing anti-Semitism and violent pogroms. And later, after the Holocaust, as thousands of survivors came here to start new lives. The new immigrants were influenced by their persecution and the rise of working class movements in Europe and Russia. Many Jewish migrants to Australia from the 1890s onward had a very different understanding of social structures, class and injustice from their Anglo-Jewish forebears. Over time, those changing values led to the development of a better understanding and empathy towards the others who were invisible to colonial society. But change didn't come solely from within the Jewish community. Some First Nations groups saw the common interest between themselves as the subject of state-sanctioned racism and violence and the Jewish people who were being subjected to state-sanctioned anti-Semitism and violence in Europe. 
I've already mentioned William Cooper's efforts in 1938, but the arrival of Russian and European Jews saw new relationships develop between members of the Jewish community and First Nations people and groups. Gumbanjir activist and academic Gary Foley recalls the relief that the Jewish refugees who came to Australia after the war experienced and their appreciation for the warmth of the welcome when they arrived on safe shores. Gary said, they were eternally grateful that they had arrived in a land so free of the virulent strain of anti-Semitism that they had escaped in Europe. Some of them, however, were soon to realize the parallels between what was happening to the Aboriginal people and what had happened to them. Now this ugly dawning galvanized individuals and groups within the Jewish communities in Sydney, Melbourne and elsewhere to become prominent in campaigns for Aboriginal civil rights from the 1940s to the 1980s. In the post-war years, there were many individual Jews who engaged with First Nations communities and organizations. The New South Wales Jewish Board of Deputies has documented many of them in the book Hand in Hand by Anne and Lisa Maria Sarzen. But those in interactions were not coordinated and the communal efforts tended to have focused on individual acts of anti-Semitism, racism or discrimination. In his article, The Australian Jewish Left and Indigenous Rights, Professor Philip Mendes documented the engagement of the Jewish left in advocating First Nations rights and fighting racism. So in 1965, following in the footsteps of the US civil rights activists, Jewish law students like Jim Spiegelman joined Charlie Perkins on the Freedom Ride to protest the segregation laws in country New South Wales. Jim trained his home movie camera on the hostile convoy of cars which followed their bus out of town at night and ran it off the road. At the time of the bicentennial of colonization in 1988, Irving Wallach and the Sydney Jewish left organized a statement signed by over 50 Jewish Australians, arguing that our Jewish traditions require us to take a stand against racism and that all people have a common origin and are therefore equal. The statement concluded that Jewish tradition requires us to recognize the prior ownership of Australia by Aboriginal people. We support justice and land rights for Black Australia in 1988. We also saw Hans Bandler, a Jewish refugee and a Holocaust survivor, join the civil rights activism of his South Sea Islander wife, Faith, culminating in the 1967 referendum, which recognized First Nations peoples as citizens. During the period between the 30s to the 80s, there was cooperation between our communities, particularly through the work of Jewish students and, and the Jewish left, including Lorna Lippmann and Irving Wallach. But there were also lawyers, Peter Tobin, Eddie Newman, Rosine Gudeman, Emil and Hannah Witten, as well as the Bandlers, Marcus Einfeld, Ron Caston, Linda Briskman, Jim Spiegelman, Philip Mendes, Peter Wertheim, Mark Liebler, and all those singled out in the book Hand in Hand and in Mendes' academic work, The Australian Jewish Left and Indigenous Rights. But even though it was a mouthful to list them all, they were still a small minority within a minority ethno-religious group in Australia. Notwithstanding the momentous individual efforts, the late 
genocide academic Colin Tatz described the engagement between Australian Jewish groups and Indigenous groups in his 2004 essay in Disappointment as being thin and more of a veneer without depth. I think Colin said, most of the many Jewish audience I address still react in the manner of a non-Jewish audience. They are usually hostile as they question expenditure on Aborigines when they disparage all land rights claims and when they blame Aborigines alone for their physical, social and economic ills. I always hope that Jews will have moral insight and outlook. The fact that they don't continues to disappoint. So the social justice work of those individuals that I named continues under the stewardship of Peter Wertheim from the ECAJ. And of course, there are philanthropists and foundations that are also working cooperatively with communities and organizations. I want to now turn to the third wave of migration. So as the post-war Jewish migrants settled into Australian society, a third wave of Jewish migration arrived from South Africa and the former Soviet Union, shifting the connection between the two communities again. And although Jewish leadership and communal bodies participate in symbolic initiatives like reconciliation, and some have expressed support for the Uluru Statement, many Jewish leaders believe that articulation of these principles alone contributes to our relationship with First Nations peoples. But where is the Jewish-led advocacy to expose and end the systemic racism, which is the cause of so much disadvantage? Now, I've referred to the systemic racism throughout this oration, but most Australians don't see systemic racism or know what it means. We all understand colour bans like no blacks or Jews permitted in this park or in this pub. They are overtly racist prohibitions, but systemic racism is insidious. It's a mix of rules or practices that may not seem discriminatory on their face, but together they result in discrimination. Let's look at how the health system discriminates against First Nations people. If a First Nations man and a non-Indigenous man enter an emergency ward with a heart or vascular problem, the First Nations patient is 40% that's 40% less likely than the non-Indigenous patient to receive angioplasty, a stent, or angiography. Indigenous patients need kidney donations desperately, but they are 10 times less likely than non-Indigenous patients to be added to the waiting list for a kidney donation transplant. According to Kidney Health Australia, to improve access to transplantation by First Nations renal patients, there needs to be a better understanding of how to address the barriers. There also needs to be improved support services for patients. Let me give you another example in policing. Police use bicycle helmet laws to criminalise First Nations kids. Young kids are being crash tackled by police in country towns and in suburbs with large First Nations populations and violently restrained simply for not wearing a bicycle helmet while riding. And statistically, we know that there's a disproportionate charging of First Nations kids with these offences than non-Indigenous children. And of course, First Nations children can't afford to pay the fines and are being criminalised as a result. So if safety was the real issue, we could save court time and the taxpayer a whole lot of money just by giving away bicycle helmets. 
But instead, for Aboriginal kids, just riding a bike becomes a gateway into the criminal justice system. Now, there's extensive research that explains why, even if a rule or law is not explicitly racist, like the Nuremberg laws, the over-application of a law to a particular group or the conscious or unconscious bias of police officers or other officials or the culture that allows that prejudice to persist can be racist or discriminatory. And there's no doubt that the Jewish community understands overt acts of racism against individuals, and that's because we get it. But those kind of individual acts are individual and they're not state-sanctioned in Australia. They're not state-sanctioned acts that produce or sustain racial inequality. So other immigrant groups that have fled persecution, like the Sudanese in Australia, have recognised that alliances with First Nations communities are vital in the fight against racism. That's understandable, isn't it? Because they both have common experiences with the police, the justice system, with education, healthcare and child protection services experiences that are unknown to almost all Australian Jews. Perhaps the fear of broader engagement on systemic racism by Australian Jewry has been driven by news reports and opinions in the Australian Jewish media that some members of the US Black Lives Matter movement are antagonistic to Jews or to Israel. It may be that that concern is being used to deflect questions about our own communal and individual responsibility in the fight against discrimination and racism in Australia, even when no such links are evident. There may be other reasons for this lack of engagement. First Nations people make up a small fraction of the Australian population. Jews don't have much interaction with First Nations peoples in business, education, in their suburbs and in their social circles. However, these reasons do not and should not relieve Australian Jewish community members of their duty to stand up and fight discrimination wherever it may appear. Indeed, we've all benefited from the colonization of this land, while First Nations people bear the burdens of its legacy. However, my point is not to hold contemporary Australians individually responsible for past atrocities, but simply to acknowledge that the racist attitudes that enable these mindsets still remain within the fabric of our nation. But Unfortunately, these mindsets are hard to see. So today I've examined a relationship that spans 230 years, and I believe that our two communities have come to a crossroads. One path is to ignore the problem of systemic racism and pretend that it doesn't exist. And the other is to create a fourth wave for the Jewish community to face up to the realities and demand change. Now, I'm actually going to quote Ron again, <laughs> He actually hits the point for me. Ron Caston hoped that all Australians would take the latter path. He said in 1993, a B'nai B'rith oration, we know now, if we did not know it before, that blood has stained the wattle. We've all been participants in a long and cruel civil war. It's a vital part of who we are as a people. And he said, all Australians will in due course face up to the realities of our history and to the brutal realities of life today for so many of the displaced and dispossessed Indigenous peoples of Australia. Ron said that in 1993. 
Let's confront these realities and take up the challenge of Noongar woman Claire Coleman when last month she called on all Australians to support changing the date from the 26th of January uh, national holiday. She said, it's time for you to reflect. What do you stand for? Who would you stand with? Will you make a stand for Indigenous rights? Will you learn to listen? Will you stand up and be counted? If the Jewish community is going to have a meaningful relationship moving forward with First Nations peoples, then our Jewish leadership needs to step up from leadership development, community dinners, pledges, statements, and from reconciliation to actively confronting the systemic racism that First Nations peoples experience in a real partnership. We have to make the effort. We have to have the hard conversations with our politicians and policymakers and engage with grassroots First Nations organisations that are confronting this problem. Engaging as an individual is an easy step. Be curious and educate yourself about First Nations voices and perspectives in film and television. Read books and follow Indigenous media. Explore what it means to be an ally or commit to a personal anti-racism journey. And understand that might need having a few uncomfortable conversations with yourself and others. You can continue that journey in other ways with your family. Try something as simple as watching First Nations and the First Contact series on SBS and discussing them as a family. Read First Nations bedtime stories to your children and grandchildren. Have a copy of the Uluru Statement on your fridge. You can find it at www.ulurustatement.org. In our kids and grandkids, I see a future where we will come together in our collective hearts. What can be done in our workplaces? Initiate or review an existing reconciliation action plan or a RAP. A RAP is like a work health and safety plan. You put it in place to achieve a purpose. And the purpose in this case is to create a workplace free of racism and one that's safe and welcoming to First Nations people. In our workplace, we undertake cultural safety and trauma-informed training. Think about how you can amplify Indigenous voices in your work. In our organisation, the National Justice Project, we work on January 26th. We don't take that day as a public holiday. Instead, we celebrate Mabo Day and we take that day as a holiday because we won't be an ambassador for a day grounded in genocide. And acknowledging you know, that genocide is a necessary step towards healing and understanding. Our synagogues have a role to play too. I'm often surprised that not all synagogues and Jewish organisations fly an Aboriginal flag in solidarity with First Nations peoples. As part of our religious services, we pray for the welfare of our colonial structures, for the Queen, the Governor-General, the Prime Minister, the State of Israel. It's time for us to acknowledge the unceded sovereignty of the First Nations people of the land that we meet and pray on and honour and pray for their elders in all synagogues. And if you're worried about extending the length of the, the services, then we could always cut the prayer for the Queen. Our community can join protests against deaths in custody and racism or speak out in support in the, of their aims. With First Nation children as young as 10 in youth detention, why haven't mainstream Jewish organisations signed up to the Raise the Age Coalition? Let's meet with Indigenous organisations like SNAKE, 
who are trying to reduce First Nation child removals into state care. Let's meet with the Coalition of Peaks and the Partnership for Justice in Health, who are demanding health equality. Let's meet with the Aboriginal legal services in each state and the many other organisations who do amazing outreach work in their local communities. Now, the thought of where to start can be overwhelming and confusing, and it might feel like too much for each of us. But throughout history, individuals have taken a stand and changed the course of people's lives. We know the names of righteous Gentiles like Oscar Schindler, who protected his Jewish workers from death camps, from Chiguni Sugahara and Ra Wallenberg, the diplomats who helped thousands of Jews flee persecution. And in Australia, we acknowledge the bravery of First Nations man William Cooper, who wasn't even recognised as a citizen of our nation when he stood up for Jews in their darkest hour. And nearly 85 years later, we still talk about his impact. So like William Cooper, when the times demand it, each of us can find a way to make a stand and do better, not just for ourselves, but for all Australians. So thank you for listening to me today. And I can only hope that it inspires change in all of us. Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to human rights lawyer and principal solicitor for the National Justice Project, adjunct professor George Newhouse. He was delivering this year's Earl Hoffman Memorial Lecture, hosted by the Australian Jewish Historical Society. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.